early on when I started writing about muscles, I did so very privately because I didn't feel an authority to do so. So I just started writing down the things that were fascinating me and doing some research. I attended a gathering of the Freshwater Mussel Mollusk Conservation Society. And I just started introducing myself. Hi, I'm Abby. I'm writing a book about mussels because I decided I was. Nobody there doubted or questioned that because they are all fascinated by mussels. They get it. So they all understood why I would be fascinated, regardless of my background. In the veterinary community, my colleagues definitely um, <laughs> seemed pretty pretty perplexed by what I was, if I said I was writing a book and then said it was about freshwater mussels, that would get a lot of furrowed brows. Outside of the mussel community, people wouldn't necessarily understand why mussels. But um, why, why not mussels? <laughs> They're wonderful. Welcome to From the Field, a podcast logging real-life scientists and their efforts to improve the world one study at a time. I'm Priya Shelley. In this episode, I speak with Abby Gasho-Landis. Abby is the author of a book entitled Immersion, the Science and Mystery of Freshwater Mussels. Abby isn't a muscle biologist by trade. In fact, her husband is. But in 2008, a series of events with freshwater mussels in Alabama had Abby entangled in a web of curiosity and responsibility to share their story. My interest in animals began when I was born. Um, <laughs> ever since I can remember, wanted to be a veterinarian and one of those kids in Undergrad, I majored in biology and English. It took about four years in between undergrad and veterinary school. And in veterinary school, studied the large and small animals and ended up in emergency medicine for dogs and cats. And that's what I was doing in Alabama when my husband was studying freshwater mussels. So he was pursuing his PhD in um, fisheries through the study of native freshwater mussels. And Alabama is the perfect place to do that because it is the global hotspot for freshwater mussel diversity. It, it turned out be, to be a little bit contagious in that um, <laughs> as I was having my night and weekend shifts at the emergency clinic and it left me with days um, where I wasn't working during the day and um, he invited me to come along and join the field crew snorkeling a creek for mussels. That day, when I pulled a, a wetsuit on over my six-month pregnant belly um, to go and snorkel the creek, I first really had the sense of these mussels as animals. And I think that that was the initial spark, my initial infatuation and, and connection with them, not as just these inert looking things in the lab, but actually um, seeing mussels wild and alive on the, on the bed of the creek doing interesting things and realizing that they're active and beautiful and have lives that are worth thinking more about. So that was, that, that got me hooked. 
Abby felt a very personal connection with the first freshwater mussel she swam by that day. It led to her source of inspiration for sharing the story of how humans and mussels are very much connected through one very important natural resource. I also came to it from the very, for my own immersion in the experience of early motherhood, that very first time when I saw a wild mussel, it was a pregnant female mussel. I felt a certain kinship with her. We shared a kind of a vulnerability and I was, as a pregnant woman, very um, present in my own body, uh, I think more than I ever had been before. And thinking about offspring and thinking about the future of um, my kids and the future of the planet. Stella, what's up there? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Muscles, huh? I felt as I got to know the muscles stories, really the story of, of our own water, um, because that first creek where I was snorkeling was the same creek that was the city's water supply. So I felt this other intimacy with, with the environment and urgency about communicating that, sharing this perspective that muscles were giving me on not only who they are as, as this amazing, biodiverse, beautiful, kind of surprisingly charismatic set of species, but also uh, the insights that studying them gives to me about our, our water supply. Rivers and creeks in Alabama, like many waterways in the United States, have fallen victim to pollutants and waste runoff. Chihuahua Creek is a waterway that begins south of Opelika, Alabama, which is closer to the Georgia border. It flows behind a dam, which forms Lake Ogletree. An Ogletree dam holds back water when levels drop during a drought, leaving Chihuahua Creek sometimes empty. The creek continues to flow along an undisrupted area, where the mussels have a chance to recover. But from the midpoint of the creek near Chihuahua State Park, where the creek is only partially protected, an industrial materials and quarry site called Martin Marietta Materials pours sediment and other pollutants directly into the creek. Abby soon realized that the impact from pollutants on the creek had a direct connection to the drinking water that she supplied to her family. Where we lived in Alabama, Chihuahua Creek was about a 10-minute drive. And in the book, I really I had a good time kind of describing this creek almost as its own character um, and, and learning more about it as I did that, um, looking at where it kind of starts flowing and how it changes as it flows. It is located on the Piedmont region, and that lends Chihuahua Creek a lot of its character. Parts of Chihuahua Creek are very... Um, disturbed, shall we say. It flows beside, uh, on the very edge of uh, some state lands, and on the other side of the creek is a quarry that has greatly impacted the creek um, just because of sedimentation that's come from the quarry. And when you quarry out stone, it can change the flow of water, um, can open up sinkholes, especially in a limestone region. The creek also goes through the city of Auburn and past golf courses and past agricultural runoff. And there's, um, you know, chemicals, wastewater treatment. So it receives all of these insults, which are typical. They're just typical insults um, 
that creeks receive these days. Chihuahua Creek has a, uh, it's dammed, and from the dam, when you put in a dam, it stops up the creek, and behind it forms uh, a reservoir. And in that section, the creek is not a creek, it's a lake, and that's where the water supply for the city comes from. But below all of that, below the dam and the reservoir, below the city, the creek um, is able to recover. And that was really compelling to me as well, because if you go half mile down, you actually find that the muscle community is incredible, incredibly diverse, again, um, where it has taken some major hits. <laughs> so it gives me both concern and hope when you look at this one single creek. In the year 2000, eight years prior to Abby's arrival in Alabama, a muscle biologist named Mike Gangloff had discovered fine-line pocketbook mussels in the creek. This particular mussel is recognized as a threatened species by the U.S. government, and they're protected by the Endangered Species Act. Unfortunately, in the summer of 2000, approximately 80% of Chihuahua Creek disappeared due to drought. The threatened mussels were dying, and Gangloff hardly documented the event. As it turned out, Martin Marietta Materials had been closing off a public road and access to that portion of the creek's watershed, and claimed it as use for the quarry only. Needless to say, the locals wanted access to their drinking water. As I got to know Chihuahua Creek and heard some more stories, I decided that it would it, the story of Chihuahua Creek would be a good example for the beginning of the book. So in the first chapter, I talk about um, and describe what I what I just described of, of the creek's journey, but I also talk about some of the local drama surrounding the creek. This too is just a, an example of that matches many examples all over the place of conflict over water and over natural resources. Chihuahua Creek became the center of a local dispute over the creek itself. Um, it started as a, a dispute over a, a roadway that the quarry was taking over and the locals resented. And then it grew into a concern for the health of the creek itself. It became hinged on freshwater mussels because there were mussels protected by the Endangered Species Act that lived in that creek. And so lawyers became involved and the federal government became involved and state naturalists came. One of the people really who ended up called on the carpet to testify about this was um, a mussel biologist <laughs> working on his graduate degree at Auburn University. And so here you had this this very significant kind of drawn out dispute over the creek and at a time of drought when the water supply was was low and, and then contested, um, you also had mussels at the center of this conflict. As I learned more about mussels, at first it seems startling that these little clam-like creatures would would be embroiled in community-wide conflicts that, that involve all these different groups and factors. But really, mussels, they live at the intersection of so many things. They burrow into the substrate, into the creek bottom or river bottom at, with their bodies, and, and so they are very affected by the changes to the river bottoms and the characters, the character of the river bottom, whether it's rocks or mud or whether it's 
movable or whether it's stable, whether it, you know, it's eroding or whether it's being dredged uh, for, for channelizing. They're also, you know, part of their bodies in, in the river bottom and then, and then the other part is sticking up into the, the channel. And so they're affected, of course, by the water. They're constantly filtering the water through their bodies. They're affected by quantity of water and quality of water. And then their life cycles are connected to fish. They are unable to reproduce without fish and often without a specific fish species. So they really end up tied into everything about a river. So any any dispute that involves any part of a river could easily uh, relate to mussels. Freshwater mussels have existed on this earth for a long time. Their evolution seems somewhat rudimentary, but Abby explains how their composition plays a delicate role in filtering water that ultimately enters our watersheds. Freshwater mussels are in, are they're, they're mollusks, and under the group mollusks, they're bivalves. They're about 500 million years old, as far as we know. So bivalves have two valves or shells. Inside those shells is the animal, and the animal doesn't have any bones, um, and it has it's just kind of a, a visceral mass, <laughs> basically, and a couple of large muscles. Their two main muscles are a foot, so they have one foot that they can stick out from their shell and use to move around, which is a fascinating process of locomotion. The other muscle is a muscle, an adductor muscle that holds their shell closed. So staying closed is an active function for a muscle. So if they're gaping open, um, they've lost that muscle tone. Typically a, a wide open muscle is a dead muscle. Their connection with the, with the river comes when they're underwater, they open their shells a bit and they have two siphons or two apertures. And one is the in-current, um, so they draw in the water. And that one has little finger-like um, villi, little fingers that help to s- sort of begin the filtration process and keep out the big stuff. Water goes into that aperture and across their gills. So when you look into a muscle, I mean, there are just these large gill leaflets that look, um, you know, not unlike the the gills of a mushroom. You know, they're these fine leaflets of tissue. So they sort out edible particles like algae or um, plankton. They sort out oxygen from the water. So they, uh, across the membranes, oxygen can be absorbed and that's how they breathe. The relationship between mussels and our drinking water is undeniable. Give mussels some space and non-polluted water, and they're like a little underwater factory, keeping the natural world healthy. So a mussel about the size of a chicken egg can filter a half to one liter per hour. So a single mussel can, can filter 12 to 24 liters in a day. And a bed of mussels, I mean, you could have a lot of mussels in a mussel bed on the river on the riverbed. And they can really um, actually filter through their bodies um, a large percentage of the water flowing past them. And they really make it cleaner. Some of the particles they they eat and um, some of the particles they actually just, if it's not an edible particle, they package it up in mucus and excrete it in a little blob called pseudofeces. But either way, they kind of bind it and lay it on the river bottom. So they're pulling it out of the water channel. And so 
they do significant work, what we call ecosystem services. So they, they do a service for the water um, to improve the water quality. But mussels are indiscriminate about filtering particles. So they'll also filter polluted water, which is a cause of decline for mussels today. So their connection, their intimate connection with both the riverbed and the water means that their greatest strength is their greatest weakness because they're drawing the water through their bodies constantly. So they really are very sensitive to changes in the water. They can be affected by excess nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. They are affected by excess sedimentation. So near a construction site or after heavy rains, if the water gets really cloudy and turbid, that's gonna affect mussels. They are um, exquisitely sensitive to heavy metals and certain, um, you know, pesticides, toxins. They're also sensitive to other contaminants that find their way into into our water supply and, and into rivers from our wastewater. So um, things like pharmaceuticals, whether it's antibiotics or antidepressants, um, are things that we pass through our bodies um, that get into our water system. With these impacts on the freshwater population, it's no surprise why many are imperiled and endangered. Not to mention for centuries, freshwater mussels were often harvested for their versatility and beauty. So they are in trouble, and it's not them, it's us. Um, (laughs) So early on, um, a couple things started affecting them. There were... Damages to river quality, um, water quality, pollution. There were dams put in. Only 2% of streams are freely flowing in the United States. So that means over the last um, century or so, we have effectively dammed 98% of streams. So it's been kind of a wholesale process. So early on, mussels were harvested by humans. Um, There's evidence of... Native people, indigenous people in North America using mussels for food, um, using mussels for tools and jewelry. Um, there are big middens, big piles of mussel shells. Um, typically, the looks like the larger mussels were used uh, more for, for tools and um, the smaller ones were, were more tender and edible. But that was more at a sustainable rate than what happened in the um, 19th and early 20th centuries with harvesting of mussels. And so we found that freshwater mussels, sort of like oysters, also make pearls. And so there was an industry of that of harvesting mussels for their pearls. This was a, a very impressive industry of gathering these mussels. Um, there was it was sort of a pearl rush. The other thing that we did with mussels was we used their shells to make pearl buttons. Mussels come in many shapes and sizes. They can range from the size of your thumbnail to the size of almost a dinner plate. And they come in various shapes. So their shells can be smooth, almost glassy on the surface. Their shells can be very rough. They can be lumpy and bumpy. They can have ridges. They can have um, little horns that stick out. Um, They can be more of a rounded shape. They can be elongated. Um, 
They can be sort of boxy and they can be yellow, brown, black, striped, um, various sort of colors on the outside. And these are the things that gave mussels their names. Freshwater mussels have fantastic names like heel splitter, three-horned warty back, fat mucket, snuff box, pistol grip, rabbit's foot, pig toe. (laughs) It kind of goes on and on. Um, Because they were named a lot um, initially because the initial sort of study of mussels was more of a study of their shells. The shells um, on the inside, they are always lined with a pearly lining. That is the same material that covers pearls. And so that's why they do make pearls. That pearly lining can be white, pink, lavender, deep purple. Um, It is beautiful. That was the treasure that fascinated people who wanted to use these to make pearl buttons. Johann Beppel was one of those people. He actually immigrated from Germany and had done some button making of this sort in Germany and then came to the United States and sought a source for these buttons in the Mississippi River. He found a lot of these very large muscles with thick shells and uh, invented a button punch that allowed him to take a shell and punch out circular button-shaped, button-sized pieces from the shell. And they could sand off the outer coating on the shell and they would have um, just a slice of pearl, um, poke some holes in it, and it was a button. This became a big industry for about 75 years. There were button factories and there were shellers that would go out and harvest these mussels. Um, They used braille boats and so they would use boats that that dragged chains with smaller chains along the bottom and the mussels would would clamp onto these and they would pull them up just loaded with mussels. Um, They would dive down and just just rake in the mussels, as many mussels as they could collect. So the pearl button industry also um, did a number on mussel populations because they were not harvesting with any foresight <laughs> for what would, what might allow these these populations to continue. We understood actually very little about that. And in fact, as the mussel populations were declining and they were worried about them running out, that actually prompted the beginning of studying mussel biology. So along the Mississippi River, they started the Fairport Biological Station. And Johann Beppel was involved in that effort because they began to look at how can we get more mussels? Well, how do you propagate them? Um, and, it, and it turned out to be um, triggered this whole new uh, trajectory for how they were looking at mussels. Reportedly, Johann Beppel uh, had a, a bad twist of mollusk karma, um, and the story is that he actually died of a, an infected muscle wound after stepping on uh, and cutting his foot on a heel splitter muscle. Um, so that was kind of a, an, a sad irony at the end of his life. The near devastation of mussels pioneered a curiosity for learning how these strange but beautiful things that looked like rocks functioned. As the research shifted from just taxonomy, where they were just trying to identify which mussel was which and and, um, what they looked like, and they started looking inside the shells, well, you know, how do they work? How do they eat and breathe? And um, and fascinatingly, how do they reproduce? I mean, these are these are much more recent 
revelations about muscles um, in the last, you know, 40 years or so. And what we can do with that information is begin to understand how we can um, rehabilitate creeks and rivers to be more hospitable to mussels, for one thing, which is only in our best interest because what mussels need is they need clean water and they need an intact riverbed and they need plentiful water. So they need the water, the river to never run dry. We actually also need those things. <laughs> so if we look to mussels to guide our our restoration of creeks and rivers, basically they just help us know how to make so that we will have clean, abundant, fresh water for the future. But the other thing we can do is, by understanding mussels and their reproduction is we can actually propagate them and reproduce them. And so there are uh, an increasing number of mussel hatcheries um, across the United States. A passage in Abby's book says, quote, Mussels' peril is our own. We need the same thing, plentiful clean water and healthy creeks and rivers. I think of mussels as I watch the kitchen spigot run. I heed their dwindling and extinctions as a smoke detector piercing the night. Feel alarmed, they insist. Get up and look around. The house just might be on fire. End quote. And a lot of muscle biologists have decided to get up and take a look. I mean, really, around 70% of, of freshwater mussel species are imperiled, just over 70%. Um, and many species are already extinct. It has the potential to be an extremely depressing group of animals to study. <laughs> um, and when you hang out with muscle biologists, you find that they're an extremely upbeat group of people. <laughs> the Alabama Aquatic Biodiversity Center is one of my favorites. And they are doing what many of the mussel hatcheries are doing, which is taking endangered, sometimes nearly extinct mussels and propagating them or making many more of them. So they may borrow some pregnant female mussels from a river and bring them into the lab and match them with the fish host that they need so that they can flush out the larval mussels, the baby mussels, and let them latch onto the fish. When they drop off the fish, they collect them and they basically nurse these mussels along. Um, and this takes this can take a lot of trial and error trying to figure out, first of all, which fish does that mussel need? What kind of food do the new babies need? Um, and what kind of water quality can we provide? Um, but they're having a lot of success. And when I visited, I had the opportunity to to hold in my hand some of the most endangered mussels in the world. It was like a dodo. <laughs> you know, they're about to disappear off the face of the earth, but here, here I am holding it in my hand um, and, and standing in front of a big old bucket of them, thousands of them. And then the next challenge is, is finding a river or a creek to introduce those mussels into so that they can live on and so that they don't immediately die in the unsuitable habitat. But there is a lot of science and experience that goes into this, and they're, they're having uh, remarkable success doing this, and it's really exciting. There's a lot of incentive for humans to protect freshwater mussels, and that sentiment is spreading across the U.S., but the protection of mussels is something that isn't always a guarantee. Some exciting things are happening for mussels in upcoming year or so. The city of Philadelphia is 
putting a lot of resources into a large muscle hatchery. They have a, a small muscle hatchery that's educational primarily, um, but they are going to use muscles. They're going to officially use muscles to help filter the city water supply. And so I, I just am so excited about that. It's, I think, a great idea and um, draws attention to this fascinating group of animals and really allows us to utilize their amazing ability of filtration. There are kind of um, scary things possibly on the horizon for mussels, as in a recent bill that's been introduced in Congress to actually remove freshwater mussels from the Endangered Species Act. So it's to amend the Endangered Species Act of 1973 and take all freshwater mussels off the list, which is <laughs> kind of leaves me speechless at how short-sighted and um, damaging that can be. But that's that's something to pay attention to coming up. So what we can do just in our daily lives, it's simple stuff. Find out where your water comes from. Find out people in your community who are working to protect your local creeks and rivers. Find out where your water goes to um, and how what you send down the drain affects the community and the river downstream. You can get out in the creek and river and, and develop a relationship with it. Sometimes you have to be careful because mussels are threatened and endangered species. <laughs> They're still on the endangered species lists. Um, so you don't want to take them out of the creeks and rivers. Um, but if you want to find out mussels in your area where you live, there are great resources on the internet. Your state authorities can tell you which mussels you have and which ones are endangered and where they live. Something that I would love to see in the next 10 years for mussels is also what I would love to see for us. An example of that is in northeastern Alabama in the Tennessee River Basin. There's a river called the Paint Rock River. 20, 30 years ago, it was extremely beat up. The mussel populations were low. And understand that in the Tennessee River Basin, that's that really is the jewel in the crown of mussel diverse populations. It is amazing. This Paint Rock River, just from land use practices, agricultural and logging and pollution had really taken a hit. The Nature Conservancy spearheaded efforts to do um, stream restoration products and riverbank restoration, land use modifications in that whole Paint Rock River watershed and have completely changed the face of that. The fate of streams and rivers is not is not yet decided. We can still change things and really improve life for mussels and improve the future for freshwater for us um, because we are going to need freshwater. With climate change, with increasing human populations and demand um, for water, for agriculture, and um, for municipal use, we are a real drain on the available fresh water. And it is finite. For Abby, this journey began with exploration and curiosity, and she came out the other side by giving muscles a voice. And sometimes that's just as important as any scientific discovery. I would highly recommend to anyone to step outside your own experience. And I think that applies to nature. I think that applies to other people communities, cultures, that when when you have an immersive experience, 
literally, physically, and, you know, emotionally or culturally, um, when you allow yourself to plunge into something completely outside what you normally do. And that can be as simple as just going, you know, two blocks over to a tiny little restaurant you've never been to and tasting flavors that you've never tried. It can be, it could be going into your backyard or, or a park and going on a new path or just sitting really, really still and putting your face down close to the ground. (laughs) Um, Just allowing yourself to be startled by others' experiences, whether it's the experience of being a muscle under the water or the experience of another animal or human. That's the really juicy, great stuff of exploring nature in the world, um, is that it takes you so far outside your own experience, it transports you, and, and it changes the way you see things. On the next episode of From the Field. I was passing through one valley and about to go up the next ridge, and there was a sign that said, for the next three miles, five miles, whatever it was, don't stop, don't touch anything, don't eat, and don't drink. From the Field is written and recorded by me, your host, Priya Shelley. Editing and sound design by Danush Parvana. Final mix by Andy Stein. Original score by Dylan Gladhorn and artwork by Atea Nudicharis. Special thanks to our guest, Abby Gasholandis. If you enjoyed this episode of From the Field or have something to say, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and please visit fromthefieldpodcast.com for photos, show notes, guest links, and more. Music.